0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to this next episode of the Cisco TAC Security Podcast, where we TAC engineers try to deliver some useful information to you about Cisco security, troubleshooting, hot issues, and uh, interesting um, use cases that are going on here in the Cisco TAC. So coming to you from Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, this is Jay Johnston, your host, and with me to my right is Mr. David White, Jr. How's it going, David?
1: Fantastic. How
0: are you, Jay? Doing pretty good. Uh, It's finally starting to warm up. Oh,
1: thank God it's finally starting to warm
0: up. Well, I mean, actually, it wasn't all that cold it wasn't all that cold. It was freezing. Us. Well, not I mean not really bad. It was bad. Well, an ice storm did come through my um my in-laws' house and take down 13 trees in the Greensboro area. So that was pretty bad. I was at their house uh chopping up trees and hauling logs and stuff. But I tell you what, it was nice to spend all day outside doing something outside for that time.
2: When you were chopping the trees, were you at least wearing flannel? Yeah. Fantastic, of course.
0: Um so, yeah, it's been cold, but it is warming up. But, uh, um, it's been very cold. Okay. Very David,
2: <laughs> David, you're from Florida. That's very right. cold to you is 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, That's chilly. Well, you
0: get to 60 Fahrenheit
2: and I'm frozen. Yes.
0: <laughs> and Mr. Magnus is from uh, New York, so
2: how have you been, Mr. Magnus? Wearing shorts through all of it. I guess that would be one way to look at it. Wearing shorts. We're Wearing shorts right now. It's a chilly day.
0: It's true. It's 43 degrees outside.
2: Yeah, I'll probably be on PTO tomorrow with a cold, so probably. we'll plan my meetings around that.
0: How are things going for you?
2: Things are going great. Uh, it's been a, a busy, uh, busy month. We've got uh, a lot of us are all preparing for you know Cisco Live coming oh, yeah. up. In How a little are your bit.
0: slides going for your new talk?
2: Not nearly as fast as I would like, but uh, we are making headway. So. What is
0: uh, tell the listeners what your talk's about?
2: So uh, my talk this year is BreakSec Twenty Forty Two, and it's content filtering in the enterprise. So cool. demystifying the different solutions that Cisco has, and helping uh, helping our customers pick the right one for their deployment. So
0: for content filtering, do you mean like? Are you focusing on one particular protocol, I guess,
2: HTTP? HTTP, HTTPS-type traffic. Okay. So obviously that kind of put, puts you into the cloud web security, um, WSA, or CX, next-generation firewall market. Okay, cool. A lot of different options, a lot of different features.
0: Okay. Uh, so yeah, so definitely check that out. Um, I'm also presenting, uh, preparing for my presentations at Cisco Live. I'm going to be doing BreakSec 3020 again this year. That's troubleshooting firewalls, um, and I'm going to – talking about some of the newer features coming out, uh, in particular, some troubleshooting tools that are coming out in a version of ASA due out pretty soon. So that's going to be really cool. That's exciting stuff. Um, so that's going to be good. And then there's also the ASA NAT lab mm-hmm. and the ASA Troubleshooting Lab, which are going to be back this year. Those are a lot of fun. So definitely sign up for BreakSec 3020
2: and... BreakSec 2042.
0: Cool. Um, also, uh, you know, sometimes we'd like to bring to the listeners some of the neat stuff that we do in att and you know, uh, we try to stress that, you know, we're really focused on, you know, engineering here. You know, we're not just a call center. You know, we solve customer problems. We reproduce issues in the lab and we have a high sense of ownership. And one thing that um, we've been doing lately that's been stressed is programming, which is interesting and kind of pulling some of our engineers outside their comfort zone so they're getting more experience with programming. So network programming. Network too. programming. So talk about what, uh, what this recent initiative in the TAC has been, Dave.
1: So one of the things that we did is we gave uh, a lot of engineers Raspberry Pis, right, and with the idea of here's a very cheap and expensive um, computer but also scripting platform and uh, asked them to learn Python. Um, and for those of
0: you who don't know, the Raspberry Pi is just a
2: baseboard computer. It's like 40 bucks. It's like 40 bucks. It's about the size of a deck of cards. Yeah, it's got yeah. a
0: USB. It's got two USB connections, Ethernet, some RAM.
2: A couple of different models are out there.
1: Yeah, yeah it's powered by USB, right? right? So extremely low power, very small form factor. Um, you know, runs a, a, an operating system on it, similar to Linux, a Raspberry
2: OS operating yeah. system. It ha, has a bunch of uh, digital I.O. pins that you can program, mm-hmm. you know, external peripherals and hardware. Mm-hmm.
1: So the goal was is, you know, to kind of give it out as a toy slash tool, right? And also uh get the tech engineers to learn a little bit of Python and to see what fun things that they can create with it. So I mean we've got a lot of people that created some really pretty nice tools um that that can be used to help solve customer problems. Um some examples are you know, the ability to drop Raspberry Pis in different parts of the network and have it uh watch the traffic that goes by and do a packet capture analysis to detect problems in near real time.
0: Yeah, yep. There's some pretty creative things, but why Python, Magnus? I mean, why, I why think that over C or Java I or mean, Perl? I mean,
2: I think with my, I've, I've done programming in C, uh, a little bit of Java and definitely Python now. Um, I think the Python language is easy enough to learn It's rather straightforward. Uh, There are a ton of libraries out there to take care of a majority of the tasks that you want to do. So it's really a very modular, extensible language. Um, And I think there's a lot of other courses that are out there, free type things that people are using to learn more. So I think as a platform, it works probably better than the others.
0: Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, I have a computer science background, so coming from Java and C into Python, Python almost looked like pseudocode. You You know, it does tab delimiting. It's just very, it looks very sparse, but very readable, easy to read. Um, so if you're not a super programmer, you know you can probably read the Python code and figure out what's going on. Um, also it's all those modules out there. So for example, Scapy, yeah. which is packet, a packet uh, capture, packet analysis, really, type. really yeah. powerful packet ma- manipulation tool. Like if you want to simulate some type of traffic on your network, um, you can do it with Scapy. And Scapy is just a Python. Uh, module that you can load up and generate all kinds of stuff. We use that in the TAC all the time to reproduce exactly problems, uh, generate customer traffic profiles through our devices to you know test s- things. So it's really uh, powerful. So that's one thing uh, yeah.
2: we use. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's been a lot of fun working on these projects. You know, and for customers out there who want to play around with it, I mean the the Raspberry Pis are relatively inexpensive. The libraries are all free, and uh, it's like having a little Linux box you can uh, kick around, and do whatever you want with.
0: Yeah. So. Uh, definitely recommend check out um check out a raspberry pi and see what you can do with it cuz we came up with some cool stuff in the TAC. but also try getting into python um get into uh you know scapy maybe as a library to test some stuff out but really network network programmability is like you know one of the next things right the ability to um interact with our devices via a programming api and python's going to be a big part of that probably so it's good it's a know. great
1: it's a great tool to have in your tool bag
0: yeah definitely so let's get into today's episode. So last episode, we talked about clustering and the motivation for using uh, the new clustering technology on the ASA introduced in version 9.0, um, what the different unit roles were, like direct uh, master versus slave units, um, different types of clustering, spanned ether channel versus individual interface mode. So we're not going to recap all of those things in this episode. Today's episode is focused on troubleshooting. And you know, how do you take the uh, troubleshooting techniques you know and love from the ASA uh, in a non-clustered environment and map those over to clustered environments so you can troubleshoot problems. Okay. So Magnus, um, why don't you give us just a quick three minute review of the different deployment scenarios, the individual interface mode versus the spanned ether channel mode of sure. cluster deployments.
2: Sure. And, and, and again, we're reviewing this cause it's really key to understanding how clustering works. So a little review goes a long way. The first one, um, that I'm going to talk about is individual interface mode. Um, The way that a cluster is deployed in this fashion is you have X number of ASAs. Each one has an interface connected to some other next layer 3 hop. Most customers who deploy it this way, they'll have some uh, router off the inside and a router off the outside. And the determination of the traffic flow, in other words, which ASA is going to pick up that traffic and handle the specific traffic, is determined by that next hop router on either side of the firewall. So it makes a routing decision through uh, some form of equal cost load balancing and says all right well i have four different next hops. each asa is its own ip you know for that interface each has its own ip and it says all right well i'm going to send it to uh this one i'm going to load balance the next packet or the next flow to this next address so the routing decision is actually made by that next hop router on either side
0: and not by the asa it's not influenced yeah, by the, the it, asa
2: in in either situation the asa can't control what traffic it's going to see on what member of the cluster it's determined by external forces. In individual interface mode, that's your routers on either side. The other option is spanned ether channel, in which all the ASAs that are part of your cluster, let's say you have an inside interface and an outside interface that are configured on those ASAs, all the inside interfaces bundle together to form an ether channel so that the ASA cluster appears as one logical unit to the adjacent switch. That applies for both inside, outside, whatever other interfaces you have configured.
0: So for that case, what determines how the traffic reaches which ASA?
2: Well, since we're looking at the ASA cluster as a logical ether channel, the determination is based on ether channel load balancing. And it's really the adjacent switches that say, all right, I'm going to hash this packet or this flow to go on this link of an ether channel bundle. And that link just so happens to be plugged into a certain ASA.
0: Okay. So that ASA is going to receive that packet, process it, forward it on, and then...
2: Hopefully, the return traffic is going to follow that same path. Right. And...
0: And,
1: And that's why it's critically important that the ether channel load balancing algorithm is the same on both
2: sides. Exactly, exactly. You want to make sure that that return traffic, since we covered in the last episode, that a single ASA is going to process and handle all the traffic for a connection. You want to make sure that the return traffic also goes back to that same ASA in your cluster. So the
0: very first thing I think about then in through channel mode is NAT. So if the ASA is doing NAT or PAT, Uh, It's going to be changing those IP addresses. And in the return direction, it's probably, well, it could be hashed to a different ASA. Mm -hmm. And that comes down to what we're going to focus on in today's episode, a big portion of it, which is how the cluster actually deals with things like asymmetric traffic flows or um, what happens, how do we do redundancy so that if you walk up to one of the ASA clusters and power it off, units in the cluster and power it off, how does the cluster rebalance and recover and make it so that, you know, you're not going to, that connection survives that event. So a, a big part of this, um, and we have a, a lot of technology under the covers that's making this happen, um, and it comes down to the ASA's exchanging information over the cluster control link, which is that sort of... Uh,
2: we, we called it a spine, the spine of your cluster. The spine, is that what we called it in the last I think episode? we used it at the, spi- we the spine. We called it the spine. Okay,
0: we'll call it the spine. <laughs> uh, the cluster control interface is where a lot of this uh, flow replication and communication between the units works. So... Uh, You're probably used to using the show con command on the ASA, and there are certain con flags. Um, To get clustering to work, we had to introduce some new uh, connection concepts for the cluster, and uh, that is really key to understanding how clustering works. So, David, why don't you sort of talk about one of the, you know, some of the uh, connection types that we use in clustering that were introduced for clustering?
1: Well, I think... You know, before we kind of jump into all the different types, maybe it might be good to walk through a use case, right, to kind of understand what happens with clustering. So we mentioned that the ASA can't determine what packets it's going to receive. It, it just gets it. So if you've got four units in a cluster, um, you got a one-in-four chance that, you know, that any ASA in that cluster is going to receive any given packet, right? Um, obviously, it's deterministic based on, you know, routing uh, or based on either channel load balancing. But if we receive a connection uh, or a packet for a new connection in TCP, uh, and, you know there's going to be an owner of that connection. There's going to be a forwarder for that connection. Um, so the owner is the member of the cluster that actually owns that connection and processes packets for that connection. So four members in a cluster, let's call them ASAs one through four, If ASA 1 receives the first packet and it becomes the owner for that connection, it's going to forward it on from, say, the outside to the inside. If the return packet comes back and it gets hashed or routed to ASA number 1, then it's the owner of that connection. It forwards it through from inside to outside, just as if you had a standalone ASA. There is no difference, okay? However, if that return packet comes through on ASA number 2, then ASA number 2 says, I'm not the owner of this connection. I can't forward or pass that packet from inside to outside. So what instead I need to do is I need to look up and find out who owns the connection and forward the packet to the owner. And I forward that packet to the owner on the cluster control link or the spine as Magnus (laughs) likes to call it. So I will forward it over the CCL or cluster control link to ASA number one who receives it and he's the owner forwards that packet out. Now, when you look at those connections in the CON table, a forwarder connection will have a Z flag, as Jay was just mentioning. The owner won't have any additional flags, but the forwarder will have a Z flag.
0: So yeah, it really comes down to that first TCP SYN packet that makes it through the cluster. It's going to be hashed, and it'll arrive at an ASA. That ASA we will become the owner, and it will process that uh, packet and forward it on. The other thing that that uh, owner ASA will do you know we, ha- we need redundancy in this cluster we uh, need to have some sort of backup flow on some other ASA unit in case this unit fails so what it'll do is it'll look at that connection it'll sort of do a hash on that connection and choose a different member in the cluster to be what we call the connection director for that flow and you'll see a um, sort of a, a director connection or a backup connection built on some other ASA in the in the cluster, it'll distribute that based upon a hashing algorithm. But that other cluster unit will be the backup, ready to take over in case the owner unit uh, fails.
2: But I think the other the other key part there about that director flow, and it's best way to look at it is. Um, you know, it's deterministic based on that packet that came in or that connection, which one is going to become the director in that cluster. And all the units in the cluster know, That's right. based on a hashing algorithm, who's going to be the director That's for key. a certain and packet. They
0: all, and they all use the same algorithm. Exactly. Like
2: so um, if we're talking about an asymmetric flow, right? So packet came in through... Uh, ASA number ASA one. ASA number one. Mm-hmm. It went out, got routed, got handled by whatever's in the network, came back to ASA number two... The return traffic, ASA number two knows who to ask based on hashing that specific packet that came back, based on a hash of that packet and what con that would represent, it knows which unit in that cluster is going to be that director because the director knows who the owner is.
0: That's right. Okay, so let's walk through from start to finish, the TCP three-way handshake, and who becomes the owner and who's the director and who's the the forwarder. Okay, okay. here okay. we go. New TCP SYN packet arrives at ASA number one.
1: At that point, ASA on, number on one. On the outside interface of ASA outside, number one. Outside okay.
0: interface, yeah. sure. ASA, outside interface ASA number one. ASA number one builds an owner connection. Yes. And it also computes which unit will be the director for that connection and creates a, that and sends a message to that unit saying, create a director slash backup flow. You're going to be there to tell other units where the owner connection lives and also serve as a backup.
2: So let's say that got hashed out to be ASA number three.
0: Cool. So we have an owner connection on ASA number one and a director slash backup connection on ASA number three. And we forward that SYN packet onto the inside interface.
2: So now that packet is bouncing around the inside network. It uh, gets routed back and lands on ASA number two. Okay. So now ASA number two has received a packet on its inside interface that is not a new connection. Yep. It says, what am I going to do with this packet? How do I know who's going to be the owner for that packet? And
1: it's not a new connection because, not again, a new connection. it's a synack. packet. It's a synack, yep. right? So that tells it it's not a SYN, therefore I don't build a connection. But what I need to do now is look at my local CON table. Am I the owner, right? If I'm the owner, then I can process that packet from inside out. Transmit down. it on. Transmit yeah. it on. If I'm not the owner, then I need to find out who the owner is. Yep, exactly. Right? And so... Using the hash, right, it determines who the director is. Yep. Asks the director, which happens to be ASA number three, director, where do I send this packet? Who's the owner? And the director says, forward it to ASA number one. Exactly. So at that time, ASA number two, which received the packet, installs a forwarding stub flow connection, which has a Z flag, and forwards the packet over the cluster control link, the spine, to ASA number one, which receives it, checks its con table, processes it, and transmits it out
2: the outside interface. Yeah. So in just a simple three-way handshake idea, we've ended up touching three different ASAs with connection data. ASA one was the owner. ASA three was the director. I think of, whenever I think of director, I think of like a directory. You're looking something up on the director. And then ASA number two became a forwarder for this traffic. Yep.
1: Yeah. And, and this is, we're only two packets into the three-way handshake, thing, yep. right? So the third packet, the ACK, if it comes in to ASA number one, which, which it we probably should, should yeah. right, because the hash should be the same if you're using, you know, spanned either channel mode or the routing should be the same, um, then, again, it looks at the CON table, it's the owner, it processes and transmits the packet from the outside to the inside. Now, if for some reason it came to a different ASA, say ASA number four, it would go through the exact same process that the SENAC did when it hit ASA two, number two, right? So it would look in its con table. I don't have a connection for this. It's not an initial packet of a connection, of a TCP connection. Therefore, I check, do a hash, determine who the director is, so ASA number three, ask the director who's the owner, tells me ASA number one, and then I forward that packet to ASA number one. Yeah. And,
0: and a th- key part of this is that this is just for one connection. Yeah. And when another connection comes in and say that SYN packet arrives at ASA number four for a n- brand new connection, now number four, ASA number four, is the owner for that connection, and a different unit will be the director slash backup for that new connection. And this is something that trips people up at first. They think that, okay, well, in my cluster, one of the units is going to be the director always, and one of the units is going to be the, the forwarder always. No, no, it's all the units in the cluster are, you know, for different connections, maybe performing different roles.
2: Yeah, and, and I want to just make sure we, we bring this up, that forwarder concept is important, and that adds to the speed of what you get in clustering. So let's say uh, ASA number two, it has that forwarder flow next time a packet arrives, we can match that existing forwarder flow and know where to send it back over to ASA number one. We don't have to do the lookup again. We We don't don't have to go to the director. director. Exactly. We
1: we just check the con table because the con exists, because the flag says it's a Z flag, it's a forwarder. forwarder. In that con entry, it'll tell ASA number two who to forward it to, right? It'll say forward it to ASA number one. So all the information's there. And so that's that's how it And,
0: and it. you may be asking yourself, well, why doesn't just every ASA process every packet? Why can't they all just own the connection, and if they receive it, then they process that packet and forward it on? Well, it's about the throughput and the speed. I mean, it's just not efficient to do that. Um, uh, if you did that, then every ASA would have to update every single other ASA with the state of its TCP connection because, obviously, if it... One of them fails, you have to have redundancy, and it's just way too expensive. And not to just do that.
1: TCP, right? Because the ASA looks at additional yep. layers, higher layers of the packet yep. as well, right? So it's not just TCP, but all the other things, and you have to do that in near real time at the rate of whatever the packets are are, are going through, right? So yeah, you don't get nearly the performance benefit as this approach here.
0: Yep. So uh, you can see these connections if you do a show con on your ASAs. Uh, if you go to ASA number one um, in this unit and you do show con and that first TCP connection is up, you're just going to see the TCP connection and the flags probably UIOB. We said the send packet came in on the outside. O means uh, uh, outbound data, I means inbound data, and U means up. But there's no extra special clustering flags there because it's the owner of the connection. It's processing them. Uh, If you were to look at uh, ASA number three, which was the director slash backup for that connection, you would see that same connection is there, but the flag is Y, capital Y. That's the director stub flow. Um, and ASA number two, which was a forwarder, you would see the uh, con flag Z. So that would tell you it's just forwarding those packets. So if you go to a cluster unit and you're on the show con command, you'll see a whole lot of cons, and you'll probably see a lot with Y and Z uh, indicating that they are directors or forwarders for those
2: and, Jay, there's actually one more connection type that we haven't talked about yet, and that's called a backup stub flow. Oh, man. Yeah, a lot of connection types, a lot of new stuff here. But um, the reason for a backup stub flow, we mentioned this concept of a director. How do we determine the director? It's based on a hash. Yep. So let's say we'll go back to our 4ASA concept. ASA1 it's the owner. Yep. It does the hash in order to figure out who the director is. Now, what happens if that hash happens to point right back at ASA1? So ASA1 is going to be both the owner and the director.
0: We would have we would have no redundancy in that. You case. have no
2: redundancy. Let's say ASA1 just, you know, something happens, somebody powers it off. Well, that information's now gone. Not when you have something called a backup stub flow. So when that happens, that sort of hash collision happens with picking a director, the cluster will pick another unit to be that backup stub flow unit. In order for that unit to have that redundant connection information, should we have the owner of a connection fail.
1: And and so in summary what this means is that there will always be two copies of the same connection on two different units. Um, so said another way, you will never the cluster will never have just one copy of information about a connection. Yes, it will always be on the forwarder, but additionally, it will always reside on some other unit in the cluster, and that'll be either the director or the backup stub flow, right? Because anytime uh, we we It's designed such that any member of the cluster could fail at any point in time and that connection to not fail. So you always have to have a copy somewhere else on some other unit. You have to have a copy of that connection.
0: Yes. Um, so that explains basically how the packets are forwarded around the cluster. Now, there are some network topologies or scenarios where Uh, maybe the load balancing of the traffic to the cluster units is not optimal. Like what do you do if uh, you don't control your switches and for some reason uh, they're configured to always hash traffic to one unit or uh, you're doing individual interface mode and the uh, load balancing algorithm on the router is always sending the traffic to just one ASA. Well, that one ASA is always going to be the owner and you're not using the full potential of the cluster. So for that reason, we have another sort of knob called flow rebalance, okay? And flow rebalance does something where it, the cluster automatically looks at the load on the ASAs in the cluster, and if it sees that one of them is the owner for a lot of cons and there is a high usage of that cluster member over others, so like say there's a higher number of TCP connections per second, the CPU is higher, uh, what it will do is it will opportunistically rebalance new tcp connections so that they're owned by other units in the cluster and that ASA receiving packets for that one new flow will forward them to another unit which is actually more efficient than just processing them on the local box.
2: Yeah, that's the key here. The the actual forwarding path is a very low level packet comes in, almost no processing is done on it when we decide to forward it over that CCL link.
0: Yep, so that's flow rebalance. It's not turned on by default and you know, we don't recommend you turn it on necessarily. Uh, unless you need to. The good idea is just to watch the CPU usage and the 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 usage of your cluster units, and if you see that one of them is getting, you know, really much more taxed than other units, the flow rebalance is an option to uh, distribute that load, or better yet, look at your network topology and figure out why those connections are going to that unit in the first we, place.
1: Yeah, another command you could use is show cluster info load balance, um, and that'll let you know, you know, how many connections are native on that unit or offloaded and Gives you an idea of the how how connections are distributed across the units in the cluster.
0: So let's talk about um, we've talked about how connections are built through a cluster. Uh, that that's basically I guess the most challenging point to get right. Once you understand how the connections are built and packets are forwarded through the cluster, then you can build on that and really understand how your cluster works, you can monitor it, you can use some of the commands that we've got to um, troubleshoot your cluster and and understand how the packets are being forwarded. So what are some, if you've got a cluster, how do you run a command on the cluster? Do you run it and it runs on all the units or? Well, uh,
2: with the new clustering functionality, we introduced some prefixes to the different command syntax that you can run from the CLI. Uh, specifically the cluster exec command, uh, which takes a couple of different arguments. Uh, For example, let's say I wanted to run, I don't know, show version on all the units in my cluster. I could do cluster exec show version. And that sends over that uh, cluster control link a request to all the different units to run the command show version and report that information back to whatever unit I ran that command from. So let's say I'm on the master, which is where most people will do their configuring and troubleshooting, and I run cluster exec show version. I'm going to get an output that shows for each unit in that cluster what that output was generated and sent over. So if I had different versions on different clusters, I would see that in that output, right? The, the output would be different for each one. Now, let's say I wanted to run on just a single unit in that cluster, back to our ASA1234 cluster we've been talking about. And let's say I've named my units that, I can use the cluster exec unit blah, you know, put in the unit name, in this case unit ASA1, uh, and then run a command, and that'll send that again over the cluster control link to that specific unit, get that output, and report it back to the CLI of whatever unit I'm currently on. So you have that ability to manage and uh, get diagnostic show output from all the different members in the cluster all at once or in a very sort of surgical one unit at a time fashion.
0: Um yep, and another very useful command that we updated for the clustering feature is showcon detail. So when we were before the feature even came out, you know, TAC was playing with this feature in the labs. And what we wanted was a way to better trace how packets were being forwarded throughout the cluster for a particular connection. So if I know that an FTP connection going through my cluster, I want to I want to understand and see where those uh, packets are being forwarded. Um, which unit's receiving them, how are they forwarding it. Well, we added some extra information there um, at the request of tax so that we could get a better picture of that. And the way you run that is you run show con detail and uh, run it on the owner unit for a connection. And it'll tell you some interesting things, some extra information. It'll tell you the amount of packets sent and received over the cluster control link. Um, It will also tell you uh, for traffic being processed by that ASA, that owner ASA, how much of that traffic was received on the outside or inside or interfaces of that owner unit versus forwarded over the cluster, and which unit forwarded those packets to that owner unit. So what that means is, if you go to uh, an ASA in a cluster and you type show con detail, and you look at a particular connection, you're going to be able to tell, is this connection symmetric? meaning are all the packets being forwarded on both interfaces to this local ASA, or uh, is that are the packets being forwarded to a different ASA, say ASA number 7, and then forwarded over the cluster control link uh, back to this ASA. So it's very helpful to understand the path of the packet through the cluster. And we will include in the show notes for this episode examples of some of these outputs, so you can kind of, even if you don't have a cluster in the lab, you can um, take a look at some real-world examples of what this looks like.
2: Now, one troubleshooting tool that... Uh I love, and I've always loved on all of our platforms, is packet captures. Um, and I know when we started playing around with clustering, packet captures, again, were kind of one of our legs to stand on when it came to understanding exactly how the packets process and you know helped us uh, kind of piece together the, the state machine. Um, there's a couple of things to know about capturing in a cluster. Uh, a lot of us are used to running the command capture, you know name of the capture, interface, et cetera, uh, on a single unit. Now, if you do that now in cluster, it does not immediately replicate to all the other cluster members. You're still only capturing on that one unit. Earlier we mentioned this cluster exec command, which is really useful when doing a capture in a cluster because you want to probably run that that capture on all the inside interfaces of all the different members in your cluster or all the outside interfaces, etc. Because again, you don't know exactly which ASA is going to see the traffic you're expecting to see. So when you're doing a capture, first thing you want to do is enable it across the entire cluster with the cluster exec command. So cluster exec capture inside interface inside. That command gets replicated to all the units in the cluster. Now all of them have a capture running on the inside interface.
0: So how would you uh, view the status of the capture, see the contents of the capture on all the different...
2: Same idea. Cluster exec show cap, cap in, or whatever the name of your capture is. That'll dump out all that information from each one of the clusters and coalesce it all in series. So you get it from like ASA1, ASA2, ASA3, all that output all dumped back to your console so you can see all those different capture outputs now again remember it can can get kind of you know that's a lot of data you might be looking at so uh, you can use the unit option doing the cluster exec unit pick a unit if you want to look at a specific unix uh, capture output Uh, but again you're going to want to run it across the entire cluster because you don't know where those packets are going to be but here's where it gets actually even trickier, especially with the new cluster stuff, and it has to do with uh, packets that are forwarded. We mentioned these uh, the forwarder connection, right? So a packet has now come across our cluster control link, back over to ASA1, because ASA1 is the owner in our examples. What we do with that packet in a cluster is we re-inject it into the interface. So if I was doing a capture on that interface, I would actually see that packet come in to the inside interface, even though it came across the, con- uh, the uh, cluster controller. Because
0: we're re-injecting that packet pretty low
2: we, level. We, very, very prior, low level. Yeah. So as far as the firewall is concerned, ASA1 received that packet on the inside and processes it as though it has.
0: And that could be confusing, right? Because you'll, you'll see the same packet twice. in multiple captures.
2: Yeah. Right? So again, let's go back to that simple uh, forwarded SYN ACK packet, right? So if I were doing a capture on the inside and outside of my ASAs, the SYN I see once on the outside, great. See it once on the inside going out towards the host, fantastic. That's on ASA1. ASA2, which we said is the one that receives the SYNAC, we actually see that on the inside interface.
0: Capture, which we would, because yeah. it, re- it, it physically was, received physically that. It physically was received at that interface, right. But
2: then again, if I look at the inside capture of ASA1, I'm going to see that SYNAC packet there as well. Because
0: the packet was forwarded by ASA2 to ASA1. Over the cluster it, control link. And then ASA1 re injected that packet. Into Into the inside inside interface interface where the capture
2: picked it up. Exactly, exactly. So um, that can get really, really confusing because you start to think, oh, I've got duplicated packets in my network, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, And it it can kind of make a troubleshooting nightmare. But there's an option, re-inject hide, that can be appended to your capture statement, which tells the capture to ignore those packets. So in that case, you wouldn't see that duplicated SYNAC on ASA1's inside interface. And that makes troubleshooting these kind of asymmetric routed problems a lot a lot simpler
0: okay so we've got show con detail yep we've got packet captures with that re-inject a hide option Mm -hmm. and we've got show cluster and we've got cluster exec which you can put in front of any command to make it run uh that command on every single cluster unit and then uh, return that output and how does it when you run cluster exec um on a unit how does it communicate with the other units in the cluster
2: The communication is done through RPC to the different units that are part of that cluster. Over the CCL? Over the CCL, yeah. Again, that spine of all of them. Uh, There is communication that is done, and essentially whatever command you're running gets signaled to each individual member.
0: Okay, gotcha. And um, what other show commands do we have for cluster to monitor health, to monitor operation, that
2: kind of thing? A couple of the key ones are going to be things like show cluster history. So for those who are familiar with failover, right, show failover history, it kind of walks you through the status and, and over time what happened to your failover pair. Show cluster history does something very similar for what we have in clustering. It tells you when members are joining, leaving, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, and that was the tack push for this command output to look very, very similar to show failover history. We, wanted, uh, we knew customers would be familiar with show failover history in the format, so we said the show cluster history command should look the same, and it does. You'll be able to interpret it pretty easily. Uh, We've also got show cluster CPU, which uh, basically aggregates the output of show CPU from the entire cluster. Um, So you'll see each cluster unit and the CPU utilization for each one. So it's a quick way to get a, a snapshot of the CPU usage across the cluster. If you wanted to get more detail, you could do cluster exec show CPU detail, and that'll give you per unit breakdown of the CPU usage at the different core level.
2: Yep. Uh, Other options would be like show cluster info, uh, which has a couple of different sub commands underneath there. One of them is health, uh, which talks about monitoring sort of the health of your cluster, uh, the status of the different members that are there. Uh, Another show cluster info command is the load balance one we mentioned earlier, so you can see how uh, the utilization is uh, across your entire cluster. And then, uh, Jay, tell me a little bit about that last one uh, that that we have on our list, our little show cluster info trace.
0: Yeah, show cluster info trace is a really kind of low-level debugging output. Uh, Our cluster members use a finite state machine to just keep track of where they are uh, when running the cluster uh, feature and so you can see it moving around uh, in that state machine via show cluster info trace. This isn't one that our uh, administrators really should bother looking at for the most part but if you have to open up a TAC case, the TAC engineer will probably ask for show cluster info trace. Um, Also it is uh, a constant rolling circular buffer of information so unless you capture it pretty close to whenever um you had an incident or the lifetime of that information isn't very long unfortunately so shell cluster trace is there uh you know only really gather that data if your attack engineer asks for it so uh what happens if uh, a unit leaves like you walk up and unplug the power i mean it's processing connections the ether channels forwarding packets to it i mean what happens
1: well there's a few things that happen, right? So we talked about that every connection that the cluster is seen has, there's two copies of that connection, one on the owner and one on the director, which happen to be two different units in the cluster. So all the owner flows that were on that unit, which gets removed or dies or, you know, gets hit by a meteorite, right? All those flows have to move to some other box. At the same time, Any flows for which that device was a director for have to move again, because we, again, want to make sure we have a backup on every other device. And so this is all computed and determined via our ingenious hashing algorithm. And as a new packet gets received on one of the remaining members, it hashes and it looks to see who the director is. The director will then say, uh, you know, if the owner was the one that just, the member of the a cluster that just left, then it selects a new owner, uh, which is not also the director for that flow, mm-hmm. and tells that unit, you know, you're the new owner for this flow, and to forward packets to it.
2: Now, what what happens, Dave, if that unit that left was, you know, we have this concept of master versus slave, right? We have certain centralized features. Is there any consideration when a master maybe is the one that got meteorited?
0: <laughs> yeah. I so. like the meteorite example. Yeah. <laughs> it's so... A a very
2: small 19-inch-width meteorite landed in your data center on your master ASA unit. What happens?
1: Well, hopefully your ASA units are in different racks so it doesn't go through all of them, right? (laughs) (laughs) But I think we talked last time, right? So if you've got a cluster, an ASA cluster, there's only going to be one master. Mm -hmm. All the rest are going to be slaves. And the only unique thing about the master, well, there's a few unique things, right? One is it's the controller that pushes out configs to everything, and it's the one that you connect to for management, right? At the same time, we have some features which, if are in use by that connection, can only be processed by the master. So the master becomes the owner. Now, if the master leaves uh, the cluster, then a new master is elected, and that new uh, that that new member that becomes the master inherits the capabilities of the master, right? So it becomes the administrator, and any centralized feature is processed on the new master. Uh, Now, there will be an outage for all those flows which were going to the master. Uh, There will be an outage because those connections will have to get reset. So any new connection which uses a
2: centralized feature will get sent to the new master and get processed. So a, a small outage, but again, you, you still have this, uh, an this outage only of for the centralized for the centralized feature connections, based connections yes, yes that's right. yeah. but
1: that's if, if and only if the master is the one that gets kicked out by the meter right, um, then a new master has to be elected, and therefore any flows that were being processed by the master, which are for centralized features, not distributed features but centralized features, you would have to uh, reinitialize those.
0: And uh, joining a new unit member back into the cluster is, uh, you know, very similar to taking one out. You know, um, we're going to – the master is going to add it back into the cluster. It's going to – they're going to have to recompute that hash table to decide on directors. And then once that's done, the data interfaces will come up. It will be added to the port channel, and it will start receiving packets and, and forwarding them and or processing them. Okay, so uh, this is – the end of our second episode. We got to wrap this up. Uh, we could talk about clustering for a long time because there's lots of nuances and facets to it. Um, but you know, what what are the basic TAC recommendations, Magnus, for uh, somebody who's looking at deploying clustering?
2: Well, uh, for TAC recommendations, I guess we can start with the deployment idea of SpandEther channel versus individual interface. Yep. We recommend spanned ether channel. You have a very fast reconvergence time should a unit fall out of the cluster. Um, it's simpler to set up. It's essentially the Cisco TAC preferred method.
0: Yeah, and that uh, that comes down to uh, highly LACP, preferred. Highly preferred. Like, LACP. Highly preferred. LACP will yep. converge much faster than OSPF or EIGRP or whatever your routing topology Whatever your routing topology is. Yep. Uh,
2: secondly, uh, another design consideration. Um, you know, we're talking about asymmetric flows versus symmetric and what really introduces a lot of asymmetry, NAT or PAT. We don't recommend doing NAT or PAT necessarily in your cluster for, uh, you know, a, a little bit of performance reasons as well as complexity reasons in the way that traffic is going to be handled. Uh, so if possible, deploy this in a scenario where you're not going to need NAT, uh, ideally in some data center type environment. Yeah, but it'll work
0: just fine. I mean, we, it'll have, work we fine. Have customers running with, uh, you know, large clusters with lots of NAT going on, and it works. Yeah,
1: It's just more from a troubleshooting perspective. Exactly. It adds yet another layer of complexity yeah. um, to the troubleshooting. So it's it's a little bit more difficult. So if you don't need it, don't use it. If you need it, it's obviously there. You can use it. And for those that are using it, we might want to have an episode three to try to <laughs> explain how Nat and Pat actually work in a cluster because it's, it's definitely much more complicated.
0: Yeah. So uh, let us know. Was two, was two episodes enough? Yeah. Or do you want another are you done? Five? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you done? Are you sick of this? Are you wanting to move to something else? Let us know. Because um, there's
2: certainly a lot more content.
0: Also, it's important to read the configuration guide. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of tips and tricks we didn't talk about. Um, we just don't have time. Thing, very important things like configuring a virtual MAC address for your Ether channel so that uh, that's consistent if units join and leave, um, increasing them MT, to you. Yeah, yeah. to you considerations. Yeah. Uh, also, some logging best practices, like using logging device IDs, so you can figure out which cluster unit a certain syslog comes from, because they're all going to generate logs. Um, so, and, and also cluster health monitoring. So, uh, we'll put links on our uh, show notes page to all the information that you should read if you're looking at it. Also, uh, at Cisco Live this year, um, Andrew Osipov will be doing a presentation on clustering, and uh, you know he's got some good material out there on. You can w- watch some of the presentations on www.ciscolive365.com. You can search for Andrew Osipov or ASA Clustering, and you'll come up with that session, and the full thing is recorded there. It's free. Uh, you, just l- you just register and log in, and then you'll be able to uh, view that. So you can get even more information on clustering from uh, Andrew Osipov, the technical marketing engineer for the ASA.
1: Well, we hope this episode was informative and useful to you. Is
0: this one of our more technical episodes? I think I know, so. Maybe.
2: Uh, more uh, verbally complex.
0: Yeah, this is hard stuff to visualize, I think. It's good to have a picture. And on our show notes, we will have a picture of a sample TCP connection and showing how the send packet moves through and how the updates happen from the owner to the director and the forwarder, querying the director and all that good stuff. So um, if you're lost, don't feel bad. It's uh, complicated stuff, but our webpage will show you uh, a visual representation. And
2: just listen to this
1: episode a few times.
0: Yeah, just put it on repeat.
2: <laughs> light light a few candles, listen to it, enjoy a glass of brandy, and that's right. Realize that there should be probably better stuff to listen to than a bunch of <laughs> tech engineers talking about clustering. Go well, find some vinyl.
0: Uh, well, thanks for listening. If you stuck it through to this uh, point in the episode, we appreciate it. As always, you can reach out to us at securityshow@cisco.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at Cisco Tech Podcast, and you can visit the show notes page by Googling Cisco Tech Podcast or by going to www.cisco.com go slash Podcast. We've gotten some awesome emails from people recently. We got uh, several emails from our clustering show that we did last time. So here's episode number two for y'all. Um, Chris, thanks for writing us and, and some others. It was good. Good feedback. Thanks a lot. Keep it coming. And until next time, signing off.